Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 2022 edition of the CNS podcast. I'm Kimberly Huang and an assistant professor of neurosurgery and neurosurgical oncology at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Winship Cancer Institute. Today, we are very excited to talk with our panel about the publication entitled Fractionated Proton Beam Radiation Therapy and Hearing Preservation for Vestibular Schwannoma, Preliminary Analysis of a Prospective Phase II Clinical Trial. Here to help us understand this publication a little bit better are Dr. Shi, Dr. Vo, and Dr. Trailer. Starting with you, Dr. Shi, can you tell us a little bit about where you're coming from and your practice? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am a radiation oncologist, professor in radiation oncology at Harvard Medical School and practicing radiation oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I lead our um, CNS and ocular services in the Department of Radiation Oncology at Mass General and I'm also the medical director of our proton therapy program. Great. Dr. Vo? Yes, um, my name is Dr. Vo. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm a radiation oncologist focusing on uh, tumors of the central nervous system as well as uh, ocular tumors as well at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Great. And Dr. Trailer. Yes, uh, my name is Jeffrey Trailer, and I'm a PGY2 neurosurgery resident here also at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Wonderful. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Dr. Shi, as the senior author of the article, can you just give us a few minutes synopsis of the paper to get all of our listeners up to speed? Sure. And thank you again for having me and for um, uh, accepting this, our manuscript uh, to neurosurgery. So this is a prospective single arm phase two study. Um, the goal of the study was really to see what the value was of using proton therapy in hopefully um, helping to preserve hearing in vestibular schwannoma patients otherwise indicated for radiation treatment. We know patients with vestibular schwannoma respond very well to radiation, uh, whether, whether given a single fraction stereotactic radiosurgery or fractionated radiation, which is sometimes employed with the hopes that by delivering the radiation a little bit more gently, can we actually help preserve underlying hearing? And that was uh, basically the goal of this, um, uh, this study. So the study is for 30 patients and the publication is an interim analysis of the first 20 patients who have been enrolled at a median follow-up of four years. Patients were initially treated at 54 gray, uh, which was what our institutional standard was when the study first opened. And then after the first uh, few patients were enrolled, we decreased this to 50.4 gray in 28 fractions, uh, which is a, also a common regimen used, hoping to slightly lower dose um, with lots of retrospective data suggestive of uh, equivalent local control may actually be a little bit better in terms of hearing um, preservation. And um, local controls at four years was 100%, so that wasn't surprising. That's pretty consistent, whether it's photons or protons across uh, other experiences as well. Unfortunately, what we're hoping to, uh, to achieve in terms of higher um, serviceable hearing preservation, we did not um, reach our intended goal, and only half the patients at one year really had uh, serviceable hearing. And this is using um, the uh, Gardner-Robertson scale of uh, one or two in terms of measuring uh, serviceable hearing, where the PTA, the peer turn average, is, is no greater than 50 decibels and word recognition score of a minimum of 50%. Um, so that was a little bit disappointing, but I think it was um, really telling for us in terms of the limitations of protons, because in the outset, we were thinking, well, protons, the potential advantage of proton therapy is that the beam stops. 
and it doesn't keep going through and through where there's um, where there's uh, no exit dose essentially as compared to photons. And we purposely did not constrain, put dosimetric constraints on the cochlea uh, just to see like if we cover the target entirely to our, uh, to our prescription dose, what do we get? And, and I think that was revealing to us that the cochlea, in fact, is very, very close to the tumor in, in almost all circumstances. And the dose fall off of protons was not as sharp as we had uh, hoped it would be. And when we went back and looked, the overwhelming majority of the uh, cochlea actually receive full dose or close to full dose, which just likely accounts for why hearing preservation was actually quite poor. Great. That was a really um, good synopsis of the paper. And I think it's great that um, you published, even though it wasn't necessarily a positive result, right? Super important for the field. Dr. Vo, did you want to ask any questions or um, have any comments to add? Yeah, great. Um, thank you, Dr. Shi. So on your study, I uh, recall that it mentioned that patients were treated with passive scattering. Um, a lot yes. of sen proton centers now are moving towards pencil beam scanning. Um, in your sort of opinion, if, if that technology was available to the patients on the study, how would that potentially change the results? Um, Sure. Uh, this is study. actually uh, this is actually a really important point. So when we started to study the technology, the only technology we had a master in it was uh, passive scattering, which I liken to like a flashlight. You know, the beam's on, it spreads everywhere, and basically we put things in a path of the beam just to shape it down to the area that we want to treat. Uh, whereas now, if you're purchasing a, a new proton therapy unit, I I don't know if you can get passive scattering anymore. The technology now is very much into pencil beam scanning, uh, which is like taking a laser pointer. And, and depending on the energy of that pointer, you can try, you can penetrate to a given depth and you go deeper with higher energies and more shallow with lower energies. But you can basically take that pointer at like a crayon and color in three-dimensionally much more complex shapes of clouds of uh, radiation than you could with passive scattering. Um, and so I think that's definitely where the technology is going. I think the limitation with pencil beam scanning is literally how wide, what's the diameter of that laser pointer. Um, and um, I think ultimately that may limit the utility of pencil beam scanning or PBS in treating small targets like um, most vestibular schwannomas. Um, those studies just haven't been done yet. And I think there are maybe some things that we can do com combining things like a small spot size in order of like three millimeters, maybe with um, applying um, what we, uh, some of the techniques we did in passive scattering, like using apertures, which is what I call like the cookie cutter. It just is something you put in a path of a beam just to give it a sharper edge. Um, that might help to preserve uh, the cochlea. So I think uh, the jury's still out, but I would say, um, yeah, that definitely the new technology has to change our thought process and how we apply it for small targets. Um, Dr. Trailer, any comments or questions? Sure. Thank you again, Dr. Shi. Um, my question was, from reading your paper, it seems like there was a dose-dependent response uh, of the of cochlear toxicity with the D90, uh, which makes sense. But I was curious as to, is there a threshold for D90 that can cause toxicity in these patients, or is it sort of a smooth relationship where the more, uh, the higher the D90, the more toxicity you have? Yeah, that's a great question too. I would say um, when we look at other uh, other centers or other publications out there in terms of the dose, it does seem like 
around 45 gray is roughly the cutoff, and this is mostly retrospective data, where you see hearing better or worse hearing preservation. So the D90 also, where we saw, I think, uh, patients who were, had serviceable hearing at one year were at 40 gray versus those that were non-serviceable or 47 gray, that was the D90, which I think is telling us like the majority, the dose of the majority of the cochlea is relevant, but you could have a tail because it wasn't, it, you, it, there's a forgiveness of a little factor, maybe 10% where like, if a little bit of the edge of it got a higher dose, that wouldn't be detrimental so long as the majority of um, the organ um, got lower than a certain threshold dose. Thank you. Uh, any other questions from Dr. Bo or Dr. Trailer before I move to my questions? Yeah, I have a couple other questions for you, Dr. Shi. So Please. can you discuss on your study um, what PTV margins that were used or planning target volume um, and then strategies that could be used to decrease that margin for patients who are getting proton therapy, especially for um, you know, targets like vegetative schwannomas that are almost adjacent to, directly adjacent to the cochlea? Sure. So this is a fabulous question too, just on proton therapy in general. So in photons, we put um, a planning target volume. Basically, it's an expansion beyond whatever we want to treat. And it's an account for patient potential movement or setup error. Tends to usually it's a uniform um, expansion in the brain. Oftentimes, or uh, if a regular like uh, uh, thermoplastic mask, three millimeters is pretty standard for a stereotactic base frame. Sometimes people don't put anything. They feel like they're, that their um, setup is very rigid and, and reliable, but oftentimes a half a millimeter or one millimeter is pretty common also um, because, and then that's with pretty rigid frame, you're pretty sure that the patient can't move or setup error is pretty low. Um, but again, it's still uniform expansion around your entire target. With, and, and in proton centers, that's actually pretty um, standard approach as well. But one of the things that we do, which really gets to your question, is like, how do you maximize on that? Is that we do beam specific um, PTVs where we know that the greatest uncertainty in a given beam is actually at the end of the beam. Um, and so we actually have a log, larger PTV uh, to account for that beam range uncertainty passing through different materials and tissue. And it's usually roughly about 3% correction of uh, density. And then we actually add on a uniform one millimeter at the end, which is a larger margin than on the sides where oftentimes we feel um, particularly like in this study where we use apertures in all the beams that gives you a sharp crisp edge. Um, if we felt like the uh, likelihood of uh, setup was very low, we use a tighter margin. Um, and actually, and so one of the things that we did on this study, which we don't actually do anymore in our practice, is we work with our neurosurgeons and we used to uh, put in fiducial markers um, in, in the outer table of the skull. And this is because we didn't have cone beam CT, so three-dimensional alignment, we would use the two-dimensional two alignment. But I think with um, cone beam CT, uh, which is pretty standard in um, both photons and proton uh, newer technologies now, that would give you the security and alignment so they can keep it pretty tight. Thank you. And I have uh, one follow-up to that. You mentioned a little bit about range uncertainty, uh, which is inherent to proton beam, as well as um, in addition to that, what are your thoughts on potential long-term toxicity for these patients who tend to have uh, you know, a benign condition, may live quite a long time, but given the uh, potential differences in range yeah. uncertainty as well as linear energy, linear energy transfer, how that may affect the patient in the long run. Yeah, these are really great fundamental proton type questions. So in someone, in a patient who's not a long-term survivor, and a lot of our brain tumor patients, unfortunately, aren't, 
um, because of just like highly aggressive malignant diseases. We're hoping to slow it down for any period of time of like months, a few years. You just don't see the late radiation toxicities, but in benign tumor patients, late toxicities is a huge uh, concern. And you don't realize it in the first year or two or three often, you know? So this is actually different to like the hearing preservation we're talking about in this study. We, when we worry about things like brainstem necrosis or brain necrosis, these are things that sometimes don't arise for several years after uh, radiation treatment. And there is a concern that there's something different. Well, we know for sure there's something different in the biology of protons as compared to photons. But one of them that Dr. Vo is alluding to is that the linear energy transfer, the, the, um, the actual transfer, the um, dose of radiation um, converted, I guess, also with uh, factoring the relative biological effectiveness to RBE is high, it's, it's not uniform across uh, a, a proton beam where we, where we uh, presume it is was a photon beam. We don't see that heterogeneity. We know near the end of the beam that the biological effect of that beam goes up. Um, um, and if, if the beam is only going a certain distance into tissue and it's going, it, that edge is right at the edge of your tumor in, and maybe it's ending right at along an important surface of the brain, like the brain stem, which we see in these patients, like are we somehow biologically giving a higher dose right at the edge into the normal tissues? And could that be in, um, detrimental to a patient? Um, fortunately, I guess we haven't really seen that. And I think that's just because, well, partly because um, the doses we're using are pretty low. I think if we're uh, using doses that are 54 or 60 gray, maybe that's going to be an issue for those patients down the line, five, 10 years down the line. I think we're using a little bit more modest dose to begin with because of these um, tumors are really responsive. We have, fortunately haven't seen that toxicity uh, as yet. And I think another concern also is just volume. We know when we treat larger targets, um, higher doses, there's more toxicity. And that's part what, partly why SRS is so successful. They can treat tiny targets uh, to super high doses and we don't see that level of necrosis in our um, brains and tissues. Normal tissues are thankfully a lot more forgiving. Great, thank you. And I had one more question, uh, Dr. Shi. Um, in reading that paper, uh, in your univariate analysis, tumor volume was not significant, uh, but it seems from my understanding that you would need higher radiation doses to treat larger tumors. So do you think that there is a relationship there that uh, maybe... So I think there's actually two concepts in your question. Um, these tumors are actually really responsive to radiation. So you don't actually need a higher dose of bigger tumor, but when you treat a bigger tumor, there's a bigger volume of radiation being imparted to the brain. I, I actually agree with you, even though we didn't see it statistically significant in, in, our, in our study that subjectively, if you're treating a larger tumor, you have a higher rate of just potential side effects because there's just more tissue being exposed to that radiation. There's also separate to that, uh, just a mass effect, a larger tumor causing a little bit of pressure and then you get a radiation associated swelling in general also. I think inherently generally have a higher associated um, uh, risk of side effects. Where in the reverse, we see also when we treat really tiny vestibular schwannomas, particularly ones that are just confined uh, within the IAC, um, you, for example, because the radiation cloud is so confined there, you would never get, for example, a trigeminal uh, cranial nerve 5 symptom because it just never gets exposed to the radiation. Whereas when you treat larger tumors and encroaches uh, on a greater front of the brain stem and it's coming out of the um, uh, CPA uh, region, then in prepontine space, then you're much more apt to get potential um, facial sensory uh, type side effects. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. Thanks.
Thank you. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to ask was, do you think that there are, based off of these preliminary results, uh, better candidates for proton therapy versus more conventional radiotherapy options? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I think because of the advancement of two things, advancement of the photon-based technologies in, in terms of being able to deliver um, very complex shaped small volumes of photons now uh, using like things like BMAT, uh, SRS, um, as compared to traditional linear accelerator, cone-based SRS that used to just deliver spheres or things that look close to spheres. Um, and combined with the fact that I think most of the proton technological advancements is treating larger targets uh, in, in more sophisticated clouds, but dealing with larger volumes, we're treating like sarcomas and uh, breast cancer and uh, other uh, larger volume tumors. I think the technology, I think they're really it is less obvious that there's a benefit, I would say, to protons for small vestibular schwannomas. I think the biggest bang is probably going to be the larger ones. Occasionally, they're not they're the minority of vestibular schwannomas, but the ones that are like 2.53 centimeters or, or even larger, oftentimes these are actually debulked first to begin with because it's oftentimes not safe to give radiation therapy alone because of the mass effect on the brain and brainstem. Uh, but there could be residual tumors. They may be more of a linear shape and not like spherical. Um, those are probably the, patient, the patients that I would say are best uh, for protons, whereas the really tiny little ones, um, I think, you know, whether it's gamma knife or other photon-based technologies, linear accelerator, um, that's probably how I would differentiate it. Thank you. Actually, my question piggybacks, I think, off of that pretty well, honestly. So I was going to ask, you know, in light of this study, and I know this has been going on for a while, what's sort of your algorithm for vestibular schwannoma and deciding that proton versus photon? And I think you touched on a lot of those points, but yeah, maybe yeah. the overall picture for our listeners. So I think VMAT as a technology uh, combined with SRS has only been around it's less than 10 years. Or it's probably more in the order of like five years as a standard um, tool at our center. Um, anything that's small, uh, like a vestibular schwannoma, a typical vestibular schwannoma, two centimeters or less, we usually um, will, will use photon-based technique, um, whereas larger tumors, two and a half, three centimeters or larger are the ones that we tend to treat um, with protons or offer with protons. But honestly, the reality is photon technology, I think is very comparable for most of these patients. I would say the other thing that we factor in in terms of algorithm is the age of the patient, because one of the perhaps downside of photons when we think about the dissymmetry is that there is that low-dose scatter radiation. And most adults, that's clinically irrelevant, um, but in um, younger adults, uh, particularly, or patients with uh, syndromes like neurofibromatosis type 2, where we're concerned that we may need to use radiation again and again for other um, uh, brain or skull-based tumors, that we might want to limit that excess of radiation to make it easier uh, dosimetrically to plan um, for future cases. Those are perhaps the cases that are best um, allocated for proton therapy. Right, that's a really nice breakdown. I appreciate that. Um, and potentially even more general than that. So, you know, in our tumor board um, at Emory, across, you know, a variety of pathologies, we often actually struggle as we compare patients who've gotten proton versus photon with managing earlier and higher rates potentially of, you know, pseudoprogression or imaging changes with proton um, rather than photon. And I think generally there's an echo of that throughout the literature in the field as well. 
And of course, I noticed in your paper, your cohort at 12 months did not have necessarily imaging changes or um, pseudoprogression or RevNeck, um, albeit that this is for you know, um, vestibular schwannoma as opposed to something like glioma. So I just wanted to get a general feel since you guys are experts in the field. Um, what are your thoughts on proton versus photon for imaging changes after treatment and timing across the realm of pathologies? Yeah. We definitely do see that. So, and it's not unique uh, to any one center. I think um, multiple centers have reported on, I think two of the things that um, are associated with these early imaging changes that, um, that oftentimes called pseudoprogression or basically radiation treatment effect that's just more brisk and pronounced as protons. First is the dose. Uh, so again, we are lower doses here. I think a lot of times we see that with like lower grade gliomas or um, or anything higher doses, like 54 gray and higher, I think is definitely associated. Um, second is the tissue. So oftentimes you're seeing this with lower grade gliomas where the target's literally the brain parenchyma. And that's really where we see it. Here, we're actually mostly not in the brain or in a separate, um, in, in the tumor, uh, where we actually will, will see inflammatory changes, but it tends to just be like, a, um, looks almost like a blister or a bubble that just kind of like gets a little bigger um, and, and hypo um, intense centrally, hypo enhancing centrally, and then wait another six month year or sometimes two years and you see that collapse down uh, and, and shrink a little bit. But I would say like that pseudo progression that we see tends to be brain or brainstem parenchymal tissue associated with dose and it's also associated with volume um, of brain or brainstem being irradiated. Great. Um, as we wind down our podcast, I'd like to thank our excellent panelists for joining us today. What a wonderful discussion. I'd like to remind our listeners that the CNS podcast activity is available to claim for 1.5 CME by visiting the podcast page on cns.org. And remember to join us next month for the next Journal Club podcast, and we hope everyone has a great day. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>